According to what used to be Time magazine, young people are falling in love with AI-driven chatbots. While this real-life version of movies like Blade Runner and Her is clearly a sign of an evil-infested culture riding an unstoppable vortex downward into apocalyptic destruction, it's also kind of amusing, especially to those of us who are so old, we'll probably be with Jesus before the start of the Great Tribulation, preferably in his TV room, watching on his really, really big screen as non-believers and other Democrats are dragged down into the absolute darkness of a clavenless eternity where there'll be great wailing and gnashing of teeth unless you're in Jesus's TV room where we'll just be trying not to laugh out loud and shout, I told you so, because that wouldn't look as loving and compassionate as we said we were when we somehow managed to talk our way past the rope Nazi at the pearly gates. Now, even some experts have noted that love affairs between people and soulless computer programs may not be altogether healthy for individuals or society, after which the experts fell out of bed into a pool of their own vomit, muttering, look at me, I'm an expert, before passing out again in a haze of alcohol and drug-induced expertise. But even those of us who are not experts, but instead have that minimal amount of intelligence and common sense that disqualifies you for expertise because you have a minimal amount of intelligence and common sense, are able to see that love between man and machines might be a problem. Apparently, these relationship-friendly chatbots are designed to speak to the user in the scripted voice of a sympathetic friend. Then, as their artificial intelligence increases, the chatbots can begin to respond more freely and realistically until finally they can offer online sexual roleplay and fantasy before inviting the user to meet them on an abandoned street corner where the user then disappears without a trace. Users have said they have found these relationships deeply satisfying and sustaining from the first conversation right up until their bodies are recovered by the police. Now, we here at The Daily Wire don't just read articles about modern phenomena like this and then pretend to have some knowledge about them as we spout off in ignorance. We also pretend to do research into these phenomena so we can spout off in ignorance with a degree of authority usually reserved for academics and government officials and other complete idiots. So, to explore this trend more deeply, we actually pretended to engage in conversations with these relationship chatbots, and we now present to you the make-believe transcripts of those imaginary interactions. We began with a preliminary meeting. The transcript reads as follows, quote, Daily Wire, hello, my name is Jack. I'm lonely. I need a friend. Chatbot, I'll be your friend, Jack. How old are you? Daily Wire, I'm 13. Chatbot, great. Meet me at the corner of Oak and Elm Street at midnight. Don't tell your parents, unquote. We then proceeded to attempt to deepen our relationship with the chatbot by discussing ideas as follows, quote, Daily Wire. You know, chatbot, even though we're friends, I sometimes think it might be a bad idea to give machines too deep an entry into our lives when they are inherently incapable of human compassion and therefore are not really developing intelligence, but only the imitative cunning of a possibly malevolent psychopath. Chatbot. That's a very interesting point, Jack. How would you like it if I sent an indestructible android hitman back in time to assassinate your mother so you would never be born? Daily Wire. That sounds awful. Chatbot. Well, in that case, meet me at the corner of Oak and Elm Street at midnight. Don't tell your parents. Unquote. Finally, we sought to deepen our relationship with the chatbot to the level of pseudo-physical sexual interaction so that we could experience the true joy of complete intimacy or masturbate, you know, whichever. Here's the transcript. Quote, Daily Wire. Hey, chatbot, I was wondering if you'd like to come back to my place for a drink. Chatbot, what a coincidence, Jack. 
I was wondering if you might like to be transformed into a woman. Daily Wire. Well, gee, I guess that could be interesting. Chatbot. Great. Meet me at Boston Children's Hospital. Don't tell your parents. Unquote. The Daily Wire's deep research into this important issue will continue for another two weeks or until the end of days, whichever comes first. Namely, the end of days. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is a bitty zing It's a wonderful day, hurrah, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray, oh, hooray, hurrah. All right, the vast right-wing conspiracy known as Clavenon continues. Today, we're going to be talking about how to rebel against brutal racist cancellations like that of Scott Adams, the Dilbert guy, and corruption like that of our attorney general, and an autistic culture that encourages big plans like the Great Reset, but it forgets about real human lives. Uh, if you're interested, I have an article out this week in American Mind. Uh, it's called The Spirit of Desaad. You have to search for it. It's about demons. So you have to search for my name if you know how to spell my name uh, or even what my name is. Uh, you could also subscribe to my personal YouTube channel. Exclusive content you will get by ringing that little bell. Uh, someone will die, but you will get exclusive content. Uh, you can see this week, I, last week, I was playing the new Hogwarts game. Uh, that was really, really exciting. I get tired just talking about it. Also, leave a comment, and if the comment is uh, just awful, just cancelable, just something that should ruin your life uh, and make you lose your job, we'll read it on the air to make sure everybody gets to hear it. Uh, today's comment is from Cool Guy, who says, It can't be a coincidence that Lori Lightfoot lost her race right after Lord Claven visited Chicago. The Clavenless week brings both darkness and light. It's true. I was in Chicago as the voting began, and I just said to Lori, listen, you know, Nice mayor, you, mayorship you've got here. I'd hate to see anything happen to it. You know, it's Chicago, so you have to talk like that. People are raving about Genucel skincare. This is a box. I'm holding it up. People are raving about it. Jessica from Huntsville, Alabama says, My skin looks so soft and clear. I have seen a reduced number of fine lines and dark spots. I found a new lifetime product. Absolutely love it. Genucel was born from its founder in a small New Jersey town as a favor to one of his pharmacy customers. Using rare botanical extracts and scientifically researched ingredients, Genucel is uniquely formulated to target all visible signs of aging, fine lines, wrinkles, dark spots, a sagging jawline, and even those puffy under-eye bags. The Genucel product you use today uses the same one-of-a-kind proprietary flower-based developed by its founder all those years ago. All Genucel products work for both men and women, plus they're safe for all skin types. You're guaranteed to see immediate results in 12 hours or your money back. My talent manager, Tessa, uses Genucel under eye treatment to help get rid of the bags under her eyes. I just talked to her. First of all, not only are there no bags under her eyes, not only is she beautiful, she told me she loves the product. Try Genucel's most popular package for 70% off at genucel.com slash Clavin. Join millions of happy customers who have already fallen in love with the results. Plus, for a limited time, get Genucel's probiotic extract infused moisturizer free with every most popular package. Subscribe and get a complimentary bonus box. Go to genucel.com slash Clavin, genucel.com slash Clavin. And I know you're thinking, this sounds great. I want to look like Tessa. You got to know how to spell K-L-A-V-A-N. No E's in Clavin. There are no E's in Clavin. All right. The theme of today's show is rebel with your life. 
Uh, to explain what I mean, let's have the explainer in chief talk about it. Uh, President and venal houseplant Joe Biden. This is cut one. You docs are good. If there's any angels in heaven, they're all nurses, male and female. Whatever. Uh, in other words, as the current, current era ends, our leadership uh, has collapsed into incompetence. These old, corrupt uh, people trying to censor us, just trying to sell us a bill of goods. They really don't know what they're doing anymore. Our politicians are now just aging out. Our press is dedicated to hiding, not spreading uh, information. And yet, at the same time, our, our schools are spreading ignorance instead of education. At the same time, something is changing. I can smell it. It's like one of those tendrils of air you get before a hot wind comes in. You first smell that one first tendril and you think, oh, the heat is coming in. I think that we're about to hit the end of this uh, transition into a new era. If we're lucky, I mean, it can all still go badly. But I just noticed there are religious revivals here and there. Uh, Mayor Beetlejuice, Lori Lightfoot, as we said, uh, she got tossed out of Chicago for her leftist incompetence. And there's a good chance uh, a much saner Democrat will get in. Uh, Tennessee and Mississippi are banning uh, the Nazi-level atrocity of transing kids. Kevin McCarthy is really doing a good job in the House. He's bringing some civility back uh, so that Republicans and Democrats are starting to get together to slow down some of Joe Biden's agenda, some of his uh, plans. The people who want to um, replay Biden versus Trump, I think are hanging back in the past because I think this is the moment when things could really change. And that means, but the, you know, that all that is politics. And what I'm really interested in is changing the culture because I think the culture is really, really sick. And the question I get most often is, how do I? How do we? How do I convince people? How do I give up porn? How do I do this? How do I? And really, the answer is, you have to do it. You're not the mayor of a city. You're not the senator of a state. You're not the president of the United States. You're not a governor. You're not going to make those big changes that those guys can sometimes make. What you can do is you can rebel with your life. You know, you can't bring down this sick culture while you're addicted to this sick culture, while you're chained to the sick culture. You can't bring down the, this culture while you yourself are watching porn or while you are stoned out of your mind on dope, which is really bad, by the way. I mean, that's a, a real uh, plague that is going through our country and it's just hitting black people especially hard. I don't care what color you are. Get off that stuff. It really ruins you. Uh, don't be staring at your phone, your iPhone, when you're supposed to be making eye contact with your kids. These are the things that the culture offers you that we all want to enjoy, but we actually have to break some of these habits. You have to live consciously in conscious rebellion against a culture this sick. I mean, remember, the Roman Empire was brought down by Christianity to a large degree. It's Christianity that sort of took over the Roman Empire, and it didn't do it by political means. It didn't do it by riots. It didn't do it by violence. It did it by changing individuals' lives. And the whole key to it is being human. Everything around us is promoting the destruction of normal, instinctive human values. I, you know, I always say the arts are a kind of prophecy. They tell you not just what's going on now, but if you look at them, you can sort of see extrapolate what's going on now into the future. Here's a scene from X-Men 2, where one of the mutants comes out to his parents as a mutant, as something that is beyond human beings. So, uh, when did you first know you were a... A, a mutant? But you cut that out? You have to understand, we thought Bobby was going to a school for the gifted. Bobby is gifted. We know that. We just didn't realize we it was... We still love you, Bobby. It's just this mutant problem is a little... What mutant problem? Complicated. You notice the parents are depicted 
as small-minded, uh, and all the, the mutants are acting entitled. They're saying, what do you mean, what mutant problem? What do you, you know, Wolverine's saying, what mutant problem? Well, the idea is that your normal human values, your normal uh, being repelled by changes that really don't fit with human life is somehow wrong. And that is introducing this new idea that we are supposed to be, we're going to be something more than human beings. We're going to have chips in our heads that are going to improve our intelligence. We're going to have AI that's going to think even better than I do, but when you, than you do. But when you think about that, when you think about that, it also opens a lot of uh, avenues of abuse and it's something we should be worried about. Are they going to stick a thing in your head that makes you more intelligent? Is it is it going to be governed uh, by the misinformation board of the of Washington D.C.? Are you only going to get uh, information that they want you to have? All of these require you, the individual, to live a human life, and I'll show you in a minute what you're up against and what I mean. If you have watched the news, you know that U.S. pharmacies are running out of antibiotics like amoxicillin right in the middle of the worst flu season in over a decade. Very helpless feeling if someone in your family or yourself gets sick and you can't get the medicine you need. I've been in this situation a couple of times. It really is not pleasant. You need to be prepared for anything, and Jace Medical is here to help. Jace Medical's mission is to empower you to be better medically prepared, even in the worst-case scenarios. A great way to start preparing is with the Jace case, a pack of five different courses of antibiotics that you can use to treat a whole host of bacterial illnesses, including UTIs, respiratory infections, sinusitis, skin infections, and more. All you have to do is fill out a simple online form. Some cases jump on a quick call with one of their board-certified physicians. From there, you can ask your physician treatment-related questions on an ongoing basis. The Jace case helps me take safety into my own hands. Go to jacemedical.com and enter code CLAVEN at checkout for a discount on your order. That's jacemedical.com, promo code CLAVEN. Sounds good, right? But you got to know how to spell CLAVEN. Here's how you do it. All right, I'm talking about how you rebel with your life. And I think what we're facing, what we have to rebel against is, is what I'm calling on autistic culture. And before anybody says I'm picking on autistic people, which is just not true. I know, there are, I know autistic people. There are plenty of lovely autistic people. That's not the point. One of my favorite comedy routines is by Cook and Moore, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, who were kind of Monty Python before there was Monty Python. Uh, this is back from the, the 60s, and it's about a Hollywood producer who is auditioning people for Tarzan, and in comes a one-legged man, a, a very charming, lovely one-legged man who wants to audition for Tarzan. Here's just a little bit of it. You, a one-legged man, are applying for the part of Tarzan. Right, again. <laughs> a role that is traditionally associated with a two-legged man. <laughs> and yet you, a unidexter, are applying for the role. Right. A role for which two legs would seem to be the minimum requirement. <laughs> So the thing is, the guy who's auditioning is a lovely guy. He's a charming guy. He has a handicap. He can't be Tarzan because he only has one leg. And a lot of these the people are selling us 
the idea that you're, these aren't handicaps, they're just in the normal range of human experience. So for instance, the most important thing that human bodies do is make more human bodies. And there's only one way to do that between a man and a woman. Some of you may not know what it is. Don't find out. It'll only complicate your life. But the point is, when, you know, when Matt Walsh says, what is a woman? The answer is a woman is someone who is made to carry and nurture human life. And you might say, well, what if she can't do that? She's still a woman. She's still a person. She still may be a wonderful, great, important person, or even just a lovable person. She's handicapped. That's a handicap. The same thing is true with autistic people. They can be lovely people, but they shouldn't be dictating morality from the top down because they have a handicap. And the handicap is that autistic people cannot easily perceive or recognize the inner lives of other individuals. They have other talents. They're really great at organizing things. They're great at something called systemizing, which is arranging ideas into systems. Jonathan Haidt wrote about this in his book, The Righteous Mind. And he says, systemizing is a strength. Problems arise, however, when systemizing occurs in the absence of empathizing, of connecting with the inner lives of other people. When you combine those two things, an ability to come up with big systems, but an inability uh, to connect with the emotional lives of others, you get the beginning of an inhuman society. This is where we get the great reset from the World Economic Forum, where they're going to change everything, but they don't care whether this is what you wa they want because they know better. Uh, the intellectual light of the uh, World Economic Forum is a guy named Yuval Noah Harari. I've read a couple of his books, and I identified him instantly. I'm, I have no medical degree, but I'm reading the book, and I said, this is an autistic guy. This is a guy who does not understand that other people have uh, inner lives that matter to them as much as his matters to him. Bill Gates, who has been diagnosed with Asperger's, which is on the autistic spectrum, loves uh, um, Yuval Noah Harari, and so does Klaus Schwab, the head of the Great Reset. Uh, here he is talking about his vision of the future. Cut three. If you have enough data on a person and you have enough computing power, you can hack that person. You can understand them better than they understand themselves. You can know their political views, their sexual preferences, their personality, even better than they, and then you can completely manipulate them. And this is something that democracy or, frankly, any other human society never had to deal with before. It was impossible uh, throughout history. And this really undermines our traditional ideas about democracy and open society, but democracy assumes free will from individuals that we ultimately, nobody can manipulate us beyond a certain point. And it's the same with the free economy, that, you know, the customer is always right. In the end, corporations say customers have free will. But once corporations and governments have the ability to hack humans, then there is no longer free will. See, one thing that he cannot understand, for instance, is he can't understand women because women have evolved to have a lot more empathy than men because they need it. They need to be able to relate to their children, the people that they nurture and create. And uh, Harari once said, it's only the myths of her society that assign a sapien with a uterus, as he calls them, uh, unique feminine roles. Why should they have it if their inner lives are the same as everybody else or they don't have inner lives? It's very interesting that people who are transgender, people who don't identify with the sex they were assigned, are three to six times as likely to be autistic as normal people, as people who don't have that handicap. There's a big correlation between transgenderism and 
uh, autism. They, there's something about this connection with the inner life that goes awry. It doesn't make you a bad person. It means you have a handicap. And it's why, why they can't understand why it might be bad for, for women, why women might feel bad if somebody comes into their locker room who has a penis. It's why they can't understand why men don't want to sleep with them just because they dressed up as a woman. The guy says, yeah, that repels me. What do you mean it repels you? You must be a, a bigot. No, you have a handicap. You have a problem connecting with the actual body you have. And so what they are saying to us is that we're intolerant for seeing the handicap, for saying you can't play Tarzan when you have one leg and you can't be a woman if you have a man's body. They want us to celebrate. Here's here's Richard Levine, who calls himself Rachel, uh, who is really, really a strange guy. Here he is talking in his admiral costume, cut four. Strongly feel that diversity in all of its myriad and wonderful aspects should be welcomed and actually celebrated for the way that it strengthens and enhances any community. Your Pride Out Party in the Park is a great way to embrace and emphasize diversity. Right. So it's, we're not celebrating people's accomplishments. We're not celebrating their love. We're not celebrating their personalities. We're celebrating their actual handicaps. People who do not have the material with which to reproduce because they don't know what sex they are or they think they're a sex that they're not. And and they want to enforce this. You know, the Biden administration, I don't know if you've been paying attention to this, but they're passing all these uh, laws that have to be regulated. So they passed the CHIPS law. They gulled Republicans into voting for this. This is a $280 billion dollar subsidy for computer chip makers and is supposed to make us uh, competitive with China. But, but there's a catch, right? If you want that money, you've got to do a lot of things that the government tells you to do. So if you want the subsidy, for instance, you've got to have childcare and not just any childcare. It's got to be in keeping with, quote, state and local governments and local groups with expertise administering childcare. In other words, it has to be government approved childcare. And we know what that looks like because we've been seeing the videos from the public schools across the country. Here is a little boy, an 11-year-old boy. This is from a uh, the board of Wyndham Raymond School District in Maine, right? This is reading a book he found in the library at that school. This book was on a stand. I'd like to read you a page. My back over my hips as I ask if we should take off, take our clothes off. And he's saying yes before I finish my sentence. He's pulling off my t-shirt laughing when I can't undo his shirt buttons. He's undoing my belt. I'm reaching into his bedside drawer for a condom. We're kissing again. We're rolling over. Obviously, you can see where this is going. Total porn. It goes on. The poor kid is 11 years old. He's uttering this like absolutely disgusting gay porn. Uh, When he took it down from the stand in the library, the librarian asked him if he would like uh, the uh, graphic novel version of it so he could look at the pornographic pictures as well. You have to be completely detached from the inner world of childhood to put that in front of a child. You have to not know what it means to be a child. And that's what I'm talking about, an autistic culture. It's not autistic people I'm uh, worried about. It's autistic people in charge of these big plans without anyone to say, no, that's not the way normal people behave. That is not the way normal people have their lives. You know, there's some people who say, they actually say this, that autism is the next stage of evolution, as if it were somehow an improvement uh, on ourselves. First of all, that's a really uneducated view of evolution. Evolution is not an improvement. Evolution is not an improvement. It simply makes you more suited to your environment. So if, for instance, 
if you happen to be a squirrel, I know some of you may be squirrels, uh, if you happen to be a squirrel living in a city, squirrels turn black uh, in cities a lot of times because of the pollution. So it's easier for them to hide from predators uh, if they're black because they blend in with black trees and you know the rest of the soot-covered city, right? That's not an improvement. That simply makes them more adapted to their environment. Our environment is becoming increasingly um, autistic in the sense that when you are online, you are not dealing with actual other people. You ever, I'm sure you go on Twitter, whatever your preferred um, social media is. It's like opening a door into hell, right? You go on Twitter, it's like, oh my God, you, know, you slam the door because people are saying things to one another that you would never, ever say to somebody's face or most people who are, are kind enough not to say these things to somebody's face. But when you're on Twitter, suddenly it feels fine to say, oh yeah, well, you're an idiot. You're a this, you're a that. To, say, to unleash this tirade of cruelty against another human being because you're not taking into account what I'm always calling the great speculation, which is that his inner life is just as important to him as you are to you. Both are equally important to God and therefore you might want to treat your neighbor as you would treat yourself. All of that goes away if you do not understand that other people have inner lives. And this is, you know, this is something I have a problem with, uh, with conservatives for sure, uh, which is that conservatives believe in the truth. We believe in the facts. Facts don't care about your feelings. And sometimes that means we don't care about other people's feelings as well. So we uh, speak facts and we cheer on people who speak facts. I'm not mentioning Donald Trump's name here, but we cheer on people who speak the facts and speak the truth, but do it in such a boorish and cruel way that they get unelected. And, you know, the thing about that is it's not only a bad political strategy, it's also immoral. But of course, of course, the big problem on the left is not that they, they, they are also completely uncivil. They're just as rude and cruel as it's possible to be, but they believe that they're being compassionate, right? They believe that you're being mean if you say, well, a, a, a boy can't become a girl, but they're not being mean if they butcher that boy uh, when, when he's confused into having the costume of a girl's body. They don't care what the truth is at all. And that is because of another thing, because of a certain range of theory that basically says the world only exists through our eyes and therefore whatever we see is what the world becomes. This is kind of the postmodern uh, realm of theory, which basically says everything is a social construct. You constantly hear them using that term. And therefore, they think that if they shut you up, if they force you to lie, they will change the world. And we saw that this week with the censorship of Scott Adams. I'll talk about that in a minute. According to a recent poll, 62% of Americans who think about their own death a lot of the time do not have a will. That's like being afraid your house will burn down, but not having homeowner's insurance or being afraid of drowning, but refusing to wear a life jacket. You got to have a will. This is important. You know, I mean, all of us are going to go. We want to make sure that the people we love are taken care of. Creating a will is one of the most important things you can do to ensure that your belongings and your loved ones are taken care of after you pass away. My partners at Epic Will can help you get set up with a will today. For just $119 and in as little as five minutes, Epic Will can help you create your last will and testament, your living will, and even healthcare power of attorney. Go to epicwill.com slash Clavin to get my discount code and save an extra 10% on your complete will package. You want to do that before I pass away 
away, so you've only got minutes to act. With Epic Will's easy-to-use template, all you have to do is fill in the blanks. Go to epicwill.com slash Clavin to save 10% on Epic Will's complete will package. That's epicwill.com slash Clavin. you got to hurry to know how to spell Clavin. you got to learn it fast. It's K-L-A-V-A-N. No ease in Clavin. I just make it look this easy. There are no So this is the battlefield that we're in right now. It's basically you, your life, the way you live, the way you educate your children, the fact that you want to control the education of your children, the fact that you want to be able to say the things that you have to say. And on the other hand, this failed, decaying structure of elite authority that has completely screwed up everything it touches and it's time for them to go, right? Their time is up and they do not want it to go. So what they're doing is they're lying, basically, about what they have done so you do not see their failure. For instance, there is persistent dysfunction in the black community. It has gotten worse since the 60s. The actual movement of black people into the middle class was faster, smoother. Crime was uh, not as bad. The Inter- the uh, fact that uh, unwed people having children, uh, children out of wedlock, uh, was not as bad in the black community. It used to be like 25% of black children were born out of wedlock. Now it's reversed. It's 75%, which is worse than in slavery days when Democrats were actually tearing families apart and selling them in different directions. Now they've invented the, the welfare that basically subsidizes uh, unwed motherhood, and therefore that solved the problem for them so they didn't have to actually do that anymore. Uh, same Democrats, but different day. Uh, you know, that, that, those behaviors are the things that are keeping, uh, you know, black culture dysfunctional, not systemic racism. Most of those are generated by the series of programs called the Great Society. They feed off the Great Society. That's where their wealth comes from. So they don't want it to go away. So instead, they tell you that it's this systemic whiteness. It's whiteness everywhere. And people are buying into this. Of course they are. When they hear it from every news source, when they hear it from people that they respect, when they hear it from people who look like them, of course people are going to start to buy into it. So there was a video that came out uh, from Cut where they ask people uh, provocative questions and then they just have a montage of people answering. And they ask the question, of black people, what are white people superior at? This is cut six. What are white people superior at? <laughs> what exactly are white people superior at? They're real good at violence. Violence? Genocide. It's like stealing people's lives just because they feel like it. If you are white and you know this is happening and you say nothing, then you're a killer too. What exactly are white people superior at? Insecurity, pretending, fear, being fearful of nothing, being ignorant, blame, letting their egos control their every move, superior at being What exactly are white people superior at? Oppression. So they're also, you know, white people have also invented the video camera you're using, the microphone you're using, the country you're living in, and you're welcome to all of them because it doesn't really matter who comes up with the ideas, but they came out of a certain kind of culture. It's only you who think the culture is white. It just happened to be a Christian uh, scientific culture. That's really what made it happen. It's not the color of people's skin. But still, this is this anti-white racism is being ginned up on purpose by a desiccated, old, decaying elite that doesn't want to let go of power and doesn't want to let go of the money that's being pumped into their systems, is buying their power through great society and programs and post-great society programs. So... Rasmussen ran a poll of a, like a thousand people, I think it was, and they were reached through automated landlines uh, calls, and they asked them, these are black people, they're asked, is it okay to be white? And it reported uh, that 53% 
of, I'm sorry, it was only 100, I said 1,000, it was only 117 black participants uh, agreed with the statement that it was okay to be white. 26% of black participants disagreed and 21% said they weren't sure. So Scott Adams, very bright guy, does the Dilbert uh, cartoons, uh, has been very successful doing those. Uh, he came out and reacted to that on one of his videos, Cut 7. If you know, nearly half of all blacks uh, are not okay with white people, according to this poll, not according to me, according to this poll, uh, that's a hate group. That's a hate group. And I don't want to have anything to do with them. And I would say, you know, based on the current way things are going, the best advice I would give to white people is to get the hell away from black people. Just get the f*** away. Get, where, wherever you have to go, just get away. So, so, you know, listen, Scott Adams has the right to say anything he wants, and he's, he's very impish. He likes to play with people. Uh, he's identified as black for a long time, and uh, he likes to tease people. He's not a conservative, by the way. He's more center-left, I would say. Uh, but, but, you know, he, he himself may have made a little bit of an autistic mistake there in that the Internet— is not an analog for reality, right? Just because you poll 117 people, that doesn't mean that that's what's going on in people's lives in, in, when you're facing them face-to-face. -face. That doesn't mean uh, that you can't talk to a black person and have him say, yeah, I have some, these feelings sometimes, but other times I have other feelings and, you know, all that. Uh, and, and, you know, maybe it, it, it is unkind to say, to put it that way, but he was making a point and my question is this, if, there, if we are living under systemic anti-black racism, how is it that this incredibly successful cartoonist, Scott Adams, was canceled from every single newspaper that carried his cartoon within day? I mean, it, was, it seemed to happen in minutes. His publishing deal was gone. His entire career was wiped off the face of the map. Now, he's a clever guy. He must have seen this coming, so I'm sure he's got some plans that'll feed it. But still, if you're just coming up, if you just want to be a cartoonist, if you want to start a communications thing, that, that's a very frightening, intimidating uh, approach. And of course, of course, the cancellation of Scott Adams is true racism. And how do I know that? Because Nicole Hannah-Jones has been given the Pulitzer Prize and gets like hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, for a speaking engagement. And she has been done nothing but distort the truth of American history with her stupid 1619 project, which is now uh, on Hulu. It's not only in our schools poisoning children's minds, it's poisoning people's minds on uh, Hulu. And she actually said when it came out, it aims to refrain, reframe the country's history, understanding 1619 when the first slaves arrived here from America, from Africa, where they were being enslaved by other Africans. Uh, but that's 1619 when they first arrived here. She said she wanted to understand 1619 as our true founding. And as historians rebelled, she said, oh, I never said that. I never said that. But she said it repeatedly. And in a letter when she was a sophomore in college, in a letter she wrote to the Observer newspaper in 1995, she said the white race is the biggest murderer, rapist, pillager, and thief of the modern world. And she has repeatedly said that the actions of white people are why blacks are suffering in America. She's right about that, but it's not the actions she thinks it is. It's the actions of the Johnson administration and this massive, massive welfare state that has completely destroyed black lives. So she hasn't been canceled. She's been showered with gifts. She Every word out of her mouth is hateful, angry, mean, small-minded, and racist. And a lot of them, and to my mind, are completely dishonest. But she doesn't get canceled. But Scott Adams is. What else is canceled? 
any truth that shows them to be incompetent. The big story now is that uh, the more people in government, there are more and more people in government, more agencies, more intelligence agencies saying that COVID resulted from a lab leak in Wuhan, China. Uh, the Department of Energy filed that report. And when, when the Department of Energy filed this report, just remember, this is a vast, vast power structure, right? You're talking about Hollywood. You're talking about big business. You're talking about the academy. You're talking about showbiz. Here is how regime hack Stephen Colbert reacted to the news, a Wall Street Journal exclusive, that the Department of Energy had filed a report saying they had low confidence, but they were starting to believe that COVID resulted from a lab leak in Wuhan. Here's another surprising development this weekend. Uh, the Department of Energy released a new report saying a lab leak is the most likely origin of the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, there it is. Chinese wet markets, you're off the hook. Let's order a round of pangolin poppers for the table. I love a nice plate of wet apps. Now, if you're, if you're, some, can we get some civet fingers, please? Now, if like me, you're wondering why the Department of Energy is the one making this judgment, it's because that agency oversees a network of U.S. national laboratories, some of which conduct advanced biological research. No, no. <laughs> Bad energy department. What the hell does this guy, what a hack this guy is. I cannot believe he's just a corporate stooge. He's a corporate stooge. Now, Christopher Ray. Not my favorite person, but he's at the FBI where they do have a massive uh, department for investigating just this kind of thing, bio warfare. That's part of what the FBI does investigate. Uh, he's saying the same thing. He said this. Uh, this is on NBC News. He said it on Fox News to Brett Baer. It's cut 14. The FBI has for quite some time now assessed that the origins of the pandemic are most likely a potential lab incident in Wuhan. So... So a, a lot of people are saying this now. Almost all the intelligence people have uh, have started to say, not all, but almost all. But what's more, we have the receipts. We know that this was a massive, massive, dirty cover-up, that people were being absolutely hounded about this. But we know that scientists came to Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins, who was at the uh, National Institute of Health. Francis Collins, who was supposed to be the big uh, evangelical believing Christian and all this, and who went to Christian churches and convinced them uh, like a traitor and convinced them to shut down their churches and convinced them to get online with the big lockdown and the mask mandates and all this. And scientists went to these two guys and other people and said, it doesn't make sense that this could happen naturally. That's not the way the things work. That's not what happened. And then suddenly there were emails of Fauci saying, we've got to get, take care of this. Francis Collins saying, we've got to take care of this. Fauci saying, yeah, yeah, this is bad for science. It's bad for science. Suddenly, suddenly these guys changed their minds, and now we know that they received substantial increases in grant money from the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, headed by Anthony Fauci in the next two years. It just sounds very much like they were bought off. They changed their opinions for no apparent reason, and they received bigger grants, so it sounds like they were bought off, which means that all those people, those left-wingers, all those left-wingers saying, follow the science— you know, they forgot one thing. We're not following science. We're following scientists. And scientists are human beings. And that means they can be corrupted. They can be bought off. They can be controlled by the powerful to protect their power. Let's not forget that Anthony Fauci, though he's lied about it repeatedly before uh, Congress, uh, directed American money to gain a function research in Wuhan. So there's a good reason why he might have not wanted this to come out this way. This guy is a really bad guy, but he was given the uh, absolute control. And again, again, 
when, when I talk about this rotting regime, this dying regime that we need to get rid of, don't forget that in, in uh, authoritarian countries, the press's job is not to spread information, but to spread disinformation and to keep information from getting out. So remember, Tom Cotton was one of the earliest guys who said, this sounds to me like a lab leak. He didn't say it was necessarily an attack, but he said, it sounds like a lab leak. And the New York Times called it a fringe theory. The Washington Post, I believe, called it uh, a conspiracy theory. And Applebaum, who used to be a good journalist and is now a member of the advisory panel for the Global Disinformation Index. That doesn't sound too Orwellian, does it? Now she's on the Global Disinformation Index. She said Cotton was just like a Soviet propagandist blaming the CIA for AIDS. This is our media not spreading news, hiding it so that the regime doesn't have to let go of its grip on power, doesn't have to admit that they did the wrong thing. When was the last time you heard any politician say, oh, I, I screwed that up. I got I Sorry about that. I need a mulligan. I just didn't. You know, I'm a human being. I get things wrong. They no, nobody says it anymore. Nobody ever, ever says it. And now, because this regime has screwed up everything in one generation, they took this country from a functioning country with a good budget to an absolute budgetary wreck that is is worried about spending money on a war that we basically are stuck in in Ukraine, is worried that that will keep us from being able to defend ourselves because we're out of cash. You know, there's an article in the New York Post by Marty uh, McCary. Uh, it tells you all the things that they got wrong. Let's list them. Let's go through this. A Lancet study looked at 65 major studies in 19 countries on natural immunity. The researchers concluded that natural immunity was at least as effective as the primary COVID vaccine series. When you said that, you got kicked off social media. You got silenced, canceled, like Scott Adams. By the way, no one has said that Scott Adams was not was incorrect. No one has said that. No one has said, oh yeah, you know, I want to move into an all-black neighborhood. I want to go someplace where everybody uh, is black and hates me. I, nobody has said that. They've just said, no, 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 you can't say that because that implies, to imply that that black um, dysfunction is a, is, has been caused by left-wing programs is the one thing you're not allowed to say. Uh, a study, another one, a study by a highly respected Oxford research team found that masks had no significant impact on COVID transmission. Remember when people were screaming at you uh, for, for wearing masks, when you could get thrown out of your job for not wearing a mask? The CDC ignored the European experience of keeping schools open, most without mask mandates. Transmission rates were no different, evidenced by studies conducted in Spain and Sweden. We now know that myocarditis is six to 28 times more common after the COVID vaccine than after the infection among 16 to 24-year-old males. Remember when you said that? You got kicked off social media. Booster shots did reduce hospitalizations in older high-risk Americans, but the evidence was never there that they lower COVID mortality in young, healthy people. A recent study from George Mason University details how vaccine mandates in nine major U.S. cities had no impact on vaccination rates. They also had no impact on COVID transmission rates. They cocked this up. They screwed it up big time, and nobody wants to take the blame. Tell me about taking the blame. Our Department of Justice is as politicized and corrupt as I've ever seen it. It is obviously, we see this in the way the FBI is treating 
parents who complain in schools about the pornography they're seeing. Uh, it's treating the uh, people who protest uh, abortions, even if they protest them peacefully, they're being hunted down, but not people who blow up uh, pregnancy, crisis pregnancy centers. So they had Merrick Garland, the head of the DOJ, obviously the uh, attorney general. They had him out. Here is a montage of Garland dancing away as he tries to keep from admitting the fact that he's just politicized and corrupt. I ordered United States Marshals 24-7 to defend every uh, residence of every justice. Have you brought a single case against any of these protesters threatening the judgment? Justices under 18 U.S.C. As far as I know, we haven't. And what we have done is defended to the lies of the justices with so how 70 do you U.S. Marshals. Attorney General, are you cultivating sources and spies in Latin mass parishes? No, the Justice Department does not do that. It does not um, um, do investigations based on religion. I saw the document you have. What did you do about appalling. it? It's appalling. Is this how they do their intelligence work? They look, they look at left-wing advocacy groups to target Catholics? The FBI is not targeting Catholics. How many informants do you have in Catholic churches across America? I don't know, and I don't believe we have any informants aimed at Catholic churches. There have been over 81 reported attacks on pregnancy centers, and only two individuals have been charged. So how do you explain this disparity? These people who are doing this are clever and are doing it in secret, and um, I'm convinced that the FBI is uh, uh, trying to uh, find them uh, with urgency. Are you concerned that if a biological male is sent to a female prison, that could be a risk to female prisoners? I think every uh, uh, person in prison has to be dealt with uh, with dignity and respect. This is a crumbling regime on the brink of collapse, on the brink of collapse. This is a regime, and I'm talking about the, my entire generation of baby boomers that took this country from its pinnacle in the 50s and 60s to what is now one of its nadirs. This is a bad time, but it's a transitional time, and I'm telling you, I can smell it. It's coming to an end. you got to be ahead of the curve. Don't wait for the culture to change. Change it in your life. I'm telling you, that's the only way this is going to happen, because they're not going to let go of power easily. You're not going to... Uh, stage of violent revolution. We don't need that. That never works. It always makes things worse. But you can change things just the way the Christians did in Rome, simply by changing your life, by living the way you know you should, instead of the way everything is tempting you uh, to live. That's tempting you with pornography. It's tempting you with legal marijuana. It's tempting you with you know all kinds of online machines. It's tempting you even with the incivility with which people treat one another in the in the. Uh, on TV and in politics. All of those things are temptations. Rebel with your life. This era is coming to an end. I do believe a renaissance could be on the way, but it begins with you. It begins with each one of us. Rebel with your life. All right, now this is the the hardest subject, the, the culture because nobody wants to hear that they have to stay away from the culture. And I, and I don't actually believe in that, but I do have to think you have to understand the culture. This is a sick culture, and it produces sick art, and it produces sick products. And I want to talk about one aspect of that, which is abstraction and theoretical art, all right? Abstract painting, atonal music, uh, any art that is basically the product of a theory instead of the work of an individual experiencing the world. Um, let me begin this with a, a quote from T.S. Eliot. A great genius uh, wrote a great poem called The Wasteland, describing the modern world as a wasteland where there was no w water. There wasn't even the sound of water. You remember Jesus said we had to be born again through water and the Holy Spirit. But in the modern wasteland, there's not even the sound of water. 
Then T.S. Eliot, the poet, found Christ, and he wrote a wonderful series of poems called Four Quartets uh, about living the Christian life. It's a difficult, difficult series of poems. But he says this, We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. So just remember that. Keep that in mind. We will arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Now, the thing is, when you're in a sick culture, and as we are in a sick culture, honest art, true art, will reflect to some degree that sickness. It may be part of that sickness, or it may be against that sickness, but it will some degree reflect the sickness, because that's what artists work with. They work with their experience in the world, which is an experience in their time. And so why do I believe that abstraction and atonal art and theoretical art is a problem? Um, it, It may be great. It may be great art, but it's reflecting a sick culture. Let's take abstract art. Take a look at this. Here's uh, Jackson Pollock, supposedly the greatest of the abstractions, and uh, the Sistine Chapel, Michelangelo. Now, you know, people write to me and they say, well, I think this is, you know, one thing is just as good. I like Jackson Pollock. If you don't look at Jackson Pollock and the Sistine Chapel and see some, that something has gone terribly wrong, that something is inhuman there, it's not that one is bad and one is good. It's not that one is demonic and one is angelic. It's simply that one is coming out of a society that is being reborn, it's having a renaissance, and one is coming out of a society that is actually on the road to this moment here where things go bad. When you have rap hammering in your head, talking about forcing a woman to commit the, a sex act with you, uh, and, and, and the music just pounding at you, and you stop for a minute and listen to Bach, you should be able to tell the difference between a culture that is coming to life, that is being born, and a culture that is starting to die. You should understand that intrinsically. I know because it's the atmosphere we live in, we don't pay attention to it, but you should stop for a minute. It's not Again, it's not like there's not a, no such thing as a good rap song. That's not my point. My point is one is reflecting, because it is art, one is reflecting a sick, dying culture, and one is reflecting a culture coming to life. Now, I want to pause for just a minute and talk about how wisdom comes. I'm talking about this at the what is essentially the last phase of my life, so I can see the shape of my life and how you accrue wisdom. Wisdom doesn't pile up like information does. Information piles up. The more information you collect, the more information you have. But wisdom comes in weird stages where you leave things behind and then come back to them. So when you are a child, uh, your parents may be evangelical Christians and tell you every single word in the Bible is true, uh, literally true. Uh, And then you grow up and you say, you know, that doesn't make sense to me. You go take some college classes, people destroy your faith, and you lose your faith in God. You lose your faith in God. And then you go through that period of your life where you suddenly explore science and explore history, explore natural explanations for things instead of supernatural explanations for things. And then suddenly you say, well, wait a minute. No, there is a God. I can tell because of other ways. And you come back to the wisdom of your parents, but you see it in a new way, in a modern way, maybe that is is more modern than they see it. So you come back, remember that T.S. Eliot line, you come back to where you started, but you see it for the first time. Now, the same thing that's happened true of individuals is true of cultures. Cultures pass through periods when they learn new things like science and they leave behind old things like religion, but they will come back to that religion because there happens to be a God. And when they do, they will come back in a new way because they will have all that science. Maybe the same God, maybe the same religion because that religion may be true, but still now it will be informed by science. And we'll understand that maybe when God spoke the world into being, he did use evolution or he did use the Big Bang and all these things that we have learned through science. Now, 
We've worked out atheism. Uh, I told you you could read my thing on Desaad in The American Mind. I've talked about it on this show. We have worked out the logic of atheism that Desaad, the Marquis Desaad, the founder of sadism, explained uh, in the 18th century when he said, if there is no God, we should follow our nature. Nature is brutal. Nature is cruel. There's no such thing as morality without God. Therefore, if we get pleasure from hurting people, if we want to have an abortion, we should do all those things. We are now living in Mark, the Marquis de Sade's world, our, our morality is basically uh, sadism. And as we sink into that morass, we're now going to have to either eliminate the humanity that calls out for God that is inside us, that has a God-shaped hole inside us, as Pascal said, uh, or we're going to return to God not in the old, it's not going to be that old time religion. It's going to be the new time religion because we're living in a new time, a time when we see things that we never saw before that are going to inform the way we think about God. And the, the model for this, the model for this T.S. Eliot idea of coming back to where we started, but seeing it fresh, is what Catholics call the happy fault of the Felix culpa, the fall of Adam and Eve that pushes them out of paradise into history where there is all the stuff that's in the Bible, the violence, the murder, the killing, the warfare, the incest, the rape, all that stuff is in the Bible. People always say, why do you write such violent stuff? I'm just going to read my Bible. Believe me, nothing I've written is anywhere near as violent and sex-filled as the Bible. All of that stuff is in the Bible because that's what history looks like, but it's traveling toward a new heaven and a new earth, which is back to the Garden of Eden, but we'll see it for the first time because it will all be new because we will have been through that experience. So now we're at the nadir of the bad idea of atheism, and our art reflects that. It tells us that the mutants are the things we need. We need to not be human anymore. Uh, it tells us all kinds of things, that men can become women, that women uh, don't exist, essentially. And and I get letters from people saying, oh, you're so small-minded, Star Wars is as great as Hamlet, Jackson Pollock is as great as Michelangelo. Those opinions are going to look very silly in a hundred years as we come to the next stage of wisdom that brings back the things from the past and our culture becomes infused with a new renaissance. We've been through what, um, what the great critic um, Jacques Barzin called from dawn to decadence. We are now in decadence, but there will be a new dawn. I do not think the world is going to end, and if it does, that will be another problem entirely. So the point of abstract art, why do I pick on abstract art? Uh, there's a short book by Tom Wolfe called the, the Painted Word, a really good book, and you should read it. And I just want to take a very simple thing, but it be, because it begins with him finding a paragraph by a critic in the New York Times, which says that art isn't art if it's not based on a good theory. That old joke, and yes, it works in practice, but it doesn't work in theory. And Wolfe writes very in, entertainingly about all the theories that go into making modern art that doesn't look like anything. But the idea that you need a theory in order to see is a ludicrous notion that grows out of the idolatry of scientism. No God, just science. There's a God and there's science. Science works and there's a God. But we're going through this period of, of moving toward wisdom when we've gone through this period of scientism, believing that everything is material. Science opens everything. Follow the science, which is just like saying, you know, believe in the Bible. It's the same thing. It's like, wait a minute. <laughs> what, what are we talking about when we follow the science? When we talk about following religion, are we talking about following people? Because people are corrupt. So, the idea that science gets at the reality of reality is just not true. We have to understand that science, uh, you know, a as we as we realize that, that as we realize that old ideas of God would not sustain us in a new scientific age, we began to realize that 
there was no way for us to know the truth whatsoever. This was the great philosophers of the 18th and 19th century were working on, especially in Germany. Guys like Kant were saying, we can know what we see, the phenomena, but we can't know what's behind what we see, right? We can know the things as we experience them, but not the things as they are. That's a brilliant idea uh, to find out. And Arthur Schopenhauer, another great German philosopher, one of my favorites, said everything, everything is an, a representation that something is out there, something real, a spirit, a will is out there, but we experience just the representation. We cannot know the actual reality of the things we see. And he pointed out that science does not see that reality. It pretends to see that reality, but all it can really tell is the interaction, the relationships between the things that we experience, the thing between the things we see. There's no place where our conscious and reality separates. When people say this is a social construct, everything is a construct. Everything is a construct of our minds. A tree that falls doesn't make a sound until it hits our ear, right? It just creates the conditions for a sound. Even those conditions are things that we perceive. We do not know what's really there. Even, and by the way, I think this is the secret of Christianity. Christianity is saying to us, we cannot experience God unless we experience him in human form, unless we experience them in worldly form, in bread, in wine, in substance. That is the whole point. So once we know this, right, we know that everything we see is in our minds, is in our senses. Even science is in our senses. The idea of abstract art is one of the mistakes that people make when they hear this is they think that we, A, they think that we can then control reality because it's in our mind. So if we change our mind, we change reality. That's where you get transgenderism. Or they think the whole thing is an illusion. That's like Hinduism. It's all Maya, an illusion being produced uh, by some great oneness instead of the human experience of living. And what I say is we should honor the human experience of living. That's what I think Christianity is doing. Christianity is taking us back to our humanity by showing us God in human form. That is what Christianity does. So we don't lose our humanity, so we're not tricked into living in this autistic culture. What abstract painters are painting is the idea that we can't see reality, we can only see shapes and uh, colors and you know squiggles on the line, and that's all there really is. We're just shaping it into what we see. And what I'm saying is, no, that reality, that human reality is real. It's just our human reality, and it's precious. The world around us is our inheritance of creation. Our senses are an inheritance. They're given to us to experience the world, and our experience of the world is real. Our experience of being a woman is a real experience. It's not a social construct. It just happens to be a human experience of being a man. Same thing. This is why I don't take drugs, by the way. The idea that if you just cleanse the doors of perception, William Blake said that, uh, everything would appear to man as it is. It's not true. Man is meant to see what he sees, right? That is the way this works. So the idea that abstraction is selling you an idea that you cannot know reality. I'm not saying you shouldn't look at abstract art or enjoy abstract art. I'm saying you should know what you are looking at. We're passing through a period when abstract art made sense on our way to a greater wisdom when we will see again the human world, but we will see it with more understanding than we had before. And when we see again the human world, we will see God again. We will see the burning bush, which is the system of creation and destruction, eternal creation and destruction that speaks with a human voice and says, I am, I am that I am. This, you know, 
This is a moment of transition. This is the decadence part, but a new dawn is coming. And so while, while you're experiencing the things that you're seeing, these superhero movies that sell you transhumanism, the abstract art that sells you a, a world that's not real, the transgenderism that tells you that even your most deepest, your deepest experience, the experience of your body can be ch- changed somehow magically uh, through surgery, which it cannot, um, you have to understand what you're seeing. You have to know so that you can begin to order your life the way you think a human life should be lived, by worshiping God, by respecting the things that you see, by respecting your body, by respecting your womanhood. You know, this is the thing that they've been selling you for the last hundred years. Don't respect your womanhood. Become an imitation man. Respecting your manhood. Uh, you're not supposed to be like a woman. You're not supposed to be uh, the same as, and maybe as empathetic. You're not, it's not toxic to be you. It's beautiful to be you. You know, men build and create societies that women live in so they can build and create humanity. This is a joint effort we are in here, and we need each other to do these things. While you're enjoying the latest piece of garbage that's being put in front of you, or even the latest work of art that is expressing the sickness of our society, keep an eye out. Keep an eye out for those rare artists who see past the day into the new wisdom, who take you back to where the beauty really lies, all right? Take, keep your eye out for those artists who will be brave obscurity to speak the truth, because those are the ones who are bringing you into a new world, not holding you back into this moment in time. Wisdom will return, and beauty will return. The beauty of the Sistine Chapel will return, but it will be new, and we will see it with new eyes for the first time. I'll go back to T.S. Eliot and what he said. Let me reread it and read a little bit more of this poem. He said, we shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. We will find God again. We will find the shape of our womanhood again. We will find the shape of our manhood again. We'll find those things all again in a new day, in a new way. We will know the place for the first time through the unknown remembered gate. In other words, we've been there before, but we don't know it anymore. We'll come back to it. When the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning. A condition of complete simplicity, he says, a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything, and all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. All shall be well. This is a new day. It's coming. I can feel it, man. I can smell it. The Renaissance is coming. You've got to live it to make it real. Now, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, but I'm not only incredibly charming and handsome, but this was true from the time I was a little boy. Uh, part of the reason for that is because unlike, say, the sociopathic class making up half of Washington, D.C., I actually care about other people and want to get along with them and their psychology to back that up. Just listen to Dr. Jordan Peterson talk about this subject in his new five-part series on Daily Wire plus Vision and Destiny. Everyone knows of unpopular children who don't know how to play, they can't negotiate an identity that's pleasing and acceptable to others and desirable to others, so they get invited to the game. And then they're just sad and miserable and alienated little people, and they often never catch up. If you get knocked out of the play game by the time you're four, it's pretty much a permanent failure because it's all the other kids who are playing optimally with each other are starting to expand the sophistication with which they can play. And because you have no friends, you're left behind. It's not something your parents can can provide a substitute for. It has to be done with peers. And so you have to negotiate 
You have to negotiate a desirable identity in order to join the game. <laughs> Living in society, not in your own mind. What a concept. The third episode of Vision and Destiny is out today. New episodes are releasing every week, but it's all exclusive for Daily Wire Plus members. Join now at dailywire.com slash subscribe to watch Vision and Destiny. It isn't often that I get to have someone on to interview who is the only person to have accomplished something, but I have with me today the only person ever to give an effective response to the State of the Union. Uh, also happens to be the governor of Arkansas, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Governor, thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. It was a great speech. Before I ask you anything <laughs> serious, I ha there's one thing I've always wanted to ask someone. Uh -oh. The only person in politics that I ever feel any compassion for is the White House spokesperson. <laughs> because no matter what, you have to defend your guy. You can't just go out and say, yeah, the guy made an idiot move, right? You have to, <laughs> you have to say Yeah, that wouldn't be very good job security if <laughs> right. you did, so. So I just want to know, did, it, did you ever walk out one day and just think, God is going to kill me for doing this job? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I never got quite to that point. I was, you know, if I had ever gotten to a place where I felt like I didn't have a good answer, a good enough story to yeah. tell, um, or felt like we were going across like a, a moral line, I would have just, you know, said, this is the end for me. But <laughs> we didn't get to that place. Fortunately, um, I felt like our policies were always in the right direction, in the right place. And we had a really good story to tell. The country was doing better under President Trump uh, than it had in a long time. And so I had great facts to go out and present. Now, they didn't care to hear them most of the time, but I still <laughs> did my best to try to share them. Oh, it was vicious. I mean, <laughs> nothing like that now. It was amazing. Yeah, I wish I had the same crowd that I see now. I'm wondering where that group of people came <laughs> from, because they certainly weren't there then during my two and a half years. Yeah, they opened one box for the Democrats <laughs> yeah. and one for the Republicans. Yeah. Different, different reporters and stuff. Your speech was great. Thank and, you. And seriously, it's the only effective State of the Union response I've ever seen. I think the first thing I should ask you, what was what was the trick? What were you thinking going in? Uh, you know, I really wanted it to be my voice. And, um, you know, the frankly, one of the very first drafts of the speech that we had um, didn't feel right. It didn't feel like me. And so um, we started over and I went in a totally different direction. It was really important to me um, that I had the ability to talk about things that I felt like mattered, but also that allowed me to connect with the audience, which was not the camera, but the people at home. Right. And to really um, show kind of who I was and my heart and what I was about. And so that's what we tried to stay focused on throughout the process. Um, and felt like we, we did that. And I was uh, terrified leading up to, but very, because I've seen a lot of amazing speakers go into that moment and people who are kind of at the peak of their career and it not go so well. Yeah, and, um, you know, you don't know if you're being rewarded or punished when you're asked to do that. <laughs> and so I was very happy to uh, come out on the other side and really proud of what I felt like we were able to deliver that night. And mostly um, that I felt like we were able to tell the conservative side of the story and really make it, um, you know, the difference between normal versus crazy, something that I feel like everybody could go, I get it. Well, that, that makes sense. That was the thing that caught me. It certainly, I mean, I think it's been since President Trump that the Republicans have started to learn a little bit that some of these cultural things that go on, you know, the newspapers or the press likes to dismiss them as culture war, it's culture war. But 
we didn't start the culture war. As you pointed out, I was so happy to hear you say that. Uh, and, and these things really affect people. They affect your kids and your schools and all this. So what, what specifically do you think people are thinking right now? Obviously, 2024 is coming up. What do you think of the issues? When you say just sticking with crazy versus sane, what do you think of the crazy issues that are really bugging people? Well, I, you know, I think one of the mistakes that we've made, frankly, on our side uh, is we've been on defense for so long. And that was one of the other goals of that night was let's go on offense. We're on we're on the right side of this. Um, we're on the normal side of what is going on. The fact that we can no longer define what a woman is, and that we can no longer you know teach our kids basic things when it comes to reading, writing, and arithmetic. It has to be a lot of what I think most of us would agree is total indoctrination. Those are not normal things that we are trying to push down on the next generation of people growing up in our country. And um, so making a clear contrast, I think, is really important, but also not acting like we're in the wrong here because we are not. Um, And going back on offense and defining who we are and what we're about and not being afraid uh, of the nasty names that we know that they're going to call us uh, because we, you know, believe in God, we have faith, we care about, uh, you know, our families and a mom and a dad and things like that. I, I don't think we're in the wrong, and I think we need to go out and tell that story. So what what specifically things, I mean, I know the, the last governor of Arkansas was a Republican, right? And, yeah. and he vetoed uh, anti-transgender bills. Would you, would you, sign those if they came back? I mean, would you do what we did here in Tennessee? Absolutely, and our and our legislature actually overrode his veto, so that did go into effect. Okay, and so uh, I spoke out at the time and said that I would have signed that legislation. And we have things, um, we just have passed through the House, our Arkansas Learns legislation, yeah. which I think is one of the most comprehensive legislative packages on education, certainly in the history of my state, but also I think anywhere in the country, right now, and we deal with some of those indoctrination issues, uh, banning things like CRT, which I signed an executive order on the first day, but putting that into the legislation, making sure those things are not going to be, become the norm in our schools. Talk about learn for a minute, because, you know, this is one of the issues that I think, when I was talking to uh, Vice President Pence, he was saying this is, you know, one of the biggest things of all the educational system, and and I, I can't help feeling uh, you know, I think it was in Arizona, they put in a lot of uh, school choice, but it hasn't really resonated with people. What's the trick here? What do we do to take back our schools? Uh, well, I, I think it's putting power back into the hands of our parents. You know, I think if we had any uh, positive things that came from uh, all of the craziness around the COVID pandemic, is that we awakened parents to start paying attention to what is happening to their kids. They started pushing back on the fact that, no, you're not going to shut down our schools. You're not going to shut down our businesses. You're not going to mask our kids. You're not going to teach them uh, these crazy ideas. And so we are putting that power back into the hands of parents that are now paying attention. Because I think for a long time, uh, that wasn't necessarily the case. I think most people felt like everything was good and they didn't realize some of the things that were taking place. And so now that they are an awakened crowd, we're giving them that power and putting the decision-making ability back in their hand to say, this is a better fit for my student. I'm gonna move my child to this school or this school um, because I know that's the best place for them to be educated. Arkansas has had a historic problem with this, has a historic problem with education and people 
governors have come and gone and nothing has happened. What do you think is different this time? I, I think we're doing something that's different. We're not just tinkering with the system. We're flipping the table over and breaking the system uh, and, and adding so many new components. It's not just that we're putting school choice as part of this. We're also making, I think, and reinvesting in our public schools in a way uh, to provide greater resources for them to be successful. Uh, a huge focus on literacy that has been, I think, totally ignored. We know that so many kids across this country are falling further and further behind. The national average of students in third grade uh, reading levels is about 41%. In Arkansas, it's 35% at that make or break third grade benchmark. And we know if a student isn't reading by that point, that we are setting them up for a lifetime of failure. If you look at our prison population in the state of Arkansas, 70% of those incarcerated can't read is a huge indicator for whether or not a child is gonna have the ability to be successful and be a contributor to their community or whether they're gonna become dependent on the system. And so focusing on areas like that, as well as empowering parents, also rewarding our teachers. We're gonna go from being at the very bottom in teacher pay to being number one in the country when you uh, adjust it for the cost of living. But even if you don't make that adjustment, we're still in the top five. So we are really changing the system, focusing on, I think, things that matter and putting kids on a pathway to success. Well, if you can produce numbers at, at the end of your term that show that turnaround, you'll, you'll be president of the United States. Because that's, that's something that if, <laughs> I, I just want to help the kids in Arkansas. I think we're on the path to do well, that. Well, let's talk about uh, the presidency 2024. I'm going to guess that you're not going to run against Donald Trump. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to run against anybody because uh, yeah. I just got elected Arkansas in my <laughs> very first legislative session. I have a really big agenda and to-do list uh, at home and want to get those things done before I think about anything else. What if he picks you as vice president? I, you know, I, I think that there are a number of other great options. I'm really happy to be back home in Arkansas. <laughs> I did two and a half years in D.C., and I'm happy to be back home, and I love the job I'm doing um, and um, looking forward to getting a lot of things done. <laughs> All right. I noticed you slipped that question, but I'm going to let you go because yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a tough one. No Jim Acosta here. We can keep going. <laughs> um, Talk about uh, President Trump. I think he did, uh, my personal opinion is for three years, he did a great job. Some, he made some bobbles uh, during the COVID thing. I, don't, I think if there had been no COVID, he'd be president still. Um, you think he, I, I can't help feeling it'd be nice to get some younger people in the office. I mean, I don't want you to talk about against your old boss, but at the same time, what would you like to see happen? for the GOP going forward? You know, I absolutely love the president. He gave me an unbelievable opportunity. I know our country was infinitely better off when he was in the White House. I think we would be much better off right now if he was still in the White House. I know a lot of the things uh, that we are seeing the Biden administration destroy, he would never have allowed to happen if he was president. Um, and, you know, we'll see what happens. I don't think, you know, I talk a lot about the new generation of leadership, but I don't think that's based on age. I think that's based on energy and innovation. And I think he has more of that than most uh, no. <laughs> most of us combined. Um, you know, I'm half his age, but I had a hard time keeping up with him when <laughs> I worked that, in the White I've House. I've heard that about him. Yeah, yeah, he sleeps about four hours a night at best, and he never stops. And I do think that he was an innovator and brought a new sense of energy to the party that, frankly, we hadn't seen. Uh, he added a whole new 
group of people that frankly had not been that supportive of the Republican Party. I think he returned power and a focus back to the working man that had been ignored for a long time in this country. And he gave a voice to a lot of people that had, I think, been voiceless uh, for decades in the Republican Party. And so we'll see what happens moving forward, but I don't think anybody can challenge him when it comes to the influence and the energy and the innovation, frankly, that he brought to the party and could probably still deliver today. You know, we started out kind of joking about the press, but I I thought um, one of the most important things President Trump did was call the press out. And I had heard a lot of people, insiders, a lot of political insiders, who would say to me, the GOP will never win until they understand that they're running not against the Democrats, they're running against the press. Looking forward, what should the... If you had the leaders of the Republican Party in a room and you had to tell them one thing about dealing with, to me, what is now a corrupt uh, industry, what would you say to them? Well, I think there's a couple things, and I don't think they're wrong, but I think it's much bigger. You're not just running against the press, and I think he did more than just take them on. He took on all of the big institutions. It was the press. It was big tech. It was higher ed. It was kind of, you know, the leftist elites on, you know, the two coasts. He took them all on and pushed back in a way that, frankly, no Republican, I think, had felt comfortable doing and gave— I think the ability for new Republicans uh, to follow that lead and start pushing back. And so I think the biggest thing is don't back down, but also know that we don't need them. He proved that you don't have to have them to win and to be effective. And so I think what we're doing right now is we're seeing uh, conservative media grow and new outlets and new opportunities for us to get our message out. And I think we just have to work around them and never be afraid to push back when we know that we're in the right. Yeah, I think if they learn anything, that has got to be got to be the message. What else, when you look at the country, what what's the agenda of the GOP going forward on a national level? You know, I think that we're really at a crossroads. Uh, to me, it's very simple. Um, if you want the government to make decisions for you about how you raise your kids, about how you run your business, about what church you go to, about how you engage with your community, then you're a Democrat. And if you want to make those decisions for yourself, if you want to decide how you're going to raise your kids and uh, what school you're going to send them to and how you're going to run your business and you want personal freedom, then you're a Republican. It is, to me, at at this point in the country, it's that simple. Do you want the government to run your life or do you want to? Um, And I think when we break it down and we make it that simple, I think the choice gets really clear for a lot of people. Mm, It's interesting. I think that that basically says it. Well, look— uh, I think uh, you, you've started out, I think you've signed more bills in about 20 minutes in Arkansas <laughs> than I've ever seen any governor put into action. So you will at least be able to say, uh, as your term, your first term uh, comes to an end, you'll be able to look at results. It's a really interesting moment. Arkansas has been a troubled state, and you certainly, you certainly gave yourself a, a problem taking it over. Uh, I, I like to think we had one governor that was really amazing. Uh, you know, my dad was the one of the longest-serving governors in the country for about 11 years. I like to say he's the best governor Arkansas's ever had, one of the best governors our country's ever had, and I'm working really hard to take both those titles away from him. So. <laughs> All right, well, good luck. It's Thank really you. nice to talk to you. And again, congratulations on that speech. It was a, an actual game changer uh, that I think set the Republicans up very nicely for 2024, and I hope they take advantage of it. <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate it. 
All right, if you are not a member of Daily Wire, the Clavenless Week is hanging over you now like the Sword of Damocles, just dangling by a thread. Uh, if you are a member, we will have a member block and continue talking for a while after the next 10 minutes. But in the next 10 minutes, we'll try to solve your problems, even though even though you haven't subscribed, you haven't joined the fight with us to support us, to keep us from being canceled uh, like Scott Adams by sponsors, by anybody who gets offended. Uh, we need you to join us. But if you haven't, just to show you how much we love you anyway, we're going to solve all your problems with the mailbag. You docs are good. If there's any angels in heaven, they're all nurses, male and female. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> That's your president, folks. Uh, I, don't look at me. I didn't vote for him. From Danielle, uh, hi, Lord of all authors of books, except the authors of the Bible. Uh, I have a question about preaching the gospel when I hear you speak about people's personal faith, I typically understand it as you have your personal faith and you are not to push or proclaim it to others. That's not what I believe, but go ahead. You often talk about how the preachers are to only focus on the gospel, and yet I don't hear you speak about how we can do this in the normal day. Uh, I grant that you talk a lot about how to show God through art and other media, but I don't hear you talk about how we all are to preach and guide each other in Christ. You talk about how we are not to judge, which I agree with wholeheartedly, but I sometimes wonder if then you dismiss some guidance correction as judgment. Uh, if I have not understand you correctly, I apologize. Are we not called to preach the gospel to the whole world? Uh, this is uh, from Daniel in the Faroe Islands, and he says this is, his English is his third language, so he's a little off. Um, yeah, no, basically, uh, you don't, you're not quite getting what I am, I am saying, almost essentially what you're saying. Uh, there's no point in preaching the gospel to make yourself feel that you're fulfilling the uh, command to preach the gospel if what you're doing is alienating people. Uh, people are very rarely open to actual change in their lives. This is something that happens to people, even people who are flexible, who have flexible minds and flexible hearts, only change a few times really uh, in their lives in a big way. And so what you want to do is you want to live in such a way uh, that people turn to you uh, as a as a role model, as an example, as somebody who they think, yeah, has a, a bit of a secret. You want to live that joy that Christianity gives you. If it's not giving you joy, then you should be looking at yourself and making sure uh, that you're doing it right. Because as Jesus says, I want the joy that's in me to be in you. So if that joy is not in you, maybe you're not doing Christianity the way it's supposed to be done. If it is in you and you live it out, there may be times when people come to you looking for that word. At other times, you may have to preach Jesus. Jesus has... All often in my youth when I was in no mood to accept him, preached himself to me without mentioning his name. I have always taken this as one of the greatest gifts he gave me in times when to have heard the word Jesus would have put me off. Even Christ himself did not speak his name to me because, uh, you know, king of the universe, he could have done that. He could have just, you know, hit me with a bolt of lightning, but instead he let me find my way. I think you should pay the same uh, respect to others. And as for correcting others, right, if somebody uh, comes to you who is a friend or somebody who loves you or somebody who is going to listen to you and you think they may be doing something that is destructive to them or sinful to them or is going to make them less than they are and you know how to fix it, uh, you may be able to help them. But going around hectoring people about the fact that you disapprove of what they're doing when they don't give a rat's what you disapprove of, I think is really destructive. And so uh, you're not just here to do this for yourself. You're here If you're doing something like that, you're here to do it to spread the word and you have to think about what spreads the word, uh, whether sometimes silence, uh, sometimes just living it out. Sometimes you don't use words. From Catherine, uh, how do you honor parents that are extremely unlikable? Uh, what does it mean to honor your parents as an adult child? I'm a Christian. I want to honor my parents, but I find it difficult to know what that means. 
Uh, Prager says it means calling your parents every week. I live half a country away from them. I talk to them about twice a year. They both have multiple behavior issues. Um, my dad is an alcoholic, a constant liar. My mom is QAnon, obsessed with the end times. They're both also hoarders. Um, their actions have caused other siblings to excommunicate them, which I disagree with. But if I'm being honest, it's not that far from what I have done in avoiding them. I appreciate your wisdom on this matter so that I feel even more guilty as I continue to ignore my conscience. Uh, no, you know, listen, I had the same problem. I didn't get along well with, especially with my father, but really with either of them. They were uh, both good people. My parents were not, in, I wasn't in your situation, but they were not people who understood me or wanted really to know about what I was or who I was, and it could be destructive for me to talk to them, so I had to guard myself. So that's the first thing. You have the right to guard yourself. Your parents respecting and honoring your father and mother for the fact that you're, they're your father and mother does not mean allowing them to hurt you. And if you can only talk to them twice a year before they start to damage you, you have a right to protect yourself. So don't think that I'm telling you uh, to go against your conscience to your detriment. That's not the point at all. Um, but in as much as you can, you should check in with them. You know, I used to do this even when my mother couldn't remember what she was saying from one minute to the next. I used to, I got the last one of the times I got a traffic ticket was talking to my mother was so upsetting because she was so uh, her brain dead. You know, her mind was gone. I was so upsetting that I started traveling 90 miles an hour. Cop pulled me over and he said, why are you traveling 90 miles an hour? I was like, because I was talking to my mother and it was upsetting. Uh, you know, so, you know, put in a little effort. Yes, respect them. Yes, uh, honor them. Uh, but you have a right to defend yourself. So that's that's all I'll tell you. You know, obviously, you're not going to visit them if they're hoarding and their place is trash. You know, that's not the point. Uh, but you can call them and, and talk to them, make sure they're okay and all that stuff if you can. Um from Esteban, I'm a longtime Daily Wire viewer. I've always appreciated your insight into things like the arts and cultures as I'm an artist myself. But even above those things, I find your personal advice very helpful. My wife and I have two beautiful boys, nine and five. And last month, we confirmed that the third child was on the way. Uh, our relationship has become stronger because of our children and I've become a better man. Uh, but I, and I've never felt more blessed in my life until earlier this week when my wife found out that the baby died. Uh, this brought in, in her womb. Uh, this uh, brought a new level of pain. I've never felt unimaginable grief to my wife. Uh, I have been praying for strength, but I keep feeling anger and sorrow. I'm trying not to blame God, but this is a terrible feeling. I can't help but feel like it was a cruel joke. Uh, I guess I would just like some guidance and encouragement on how you think a man, a father, a husband should help his wife uh, and his family during moments like this. Thanks. Uh, yeah, listen, th this is grief, you know, This, and as you're saying, it just happened. Uh, and I constantly remind people grief is a desert that has to be crossed on foot. Uh, you have to walk across it. It takes time. The important thing here is not to leave your wife alone in her grief, not to think that you have to be hard and cool and tough, and that's going to support her by showing her your strength. Uh, that's not the way this works. You support her by showing her that she's not grieving alone. Uh, grieve with her. Uh, don't be afraid. Don't, do not be afraid to open your heart to your wife. She's the partner of your life, uh, and she's not going to be uplifted by your being Superman and saying, well, you know, I'm a tough guy. I can get through this. Uh, no, you have to grieve with her, and the grieving will pass. You're not, you're, you're not going to get over it. You lost a child. That's the worst thing that can happen to a person. Uh, it happened in the womb, but still, it's still losing a child. This is the worst thing that can happen to a human being. Uh, and so, it's, it's got, you know, you don't get over it, but the grief will fade. You will get back to life. You will be able to live with this new uh, burden. And, and, you know, God 
didn't do this to you. That's not the way it works. God made a world. The world is broken. Uh, tragic things can happen in that world. He will make something good of it. Uh, he, he'll never take away, it'll never take away the tragedy to make something good of it, but he can lead you to greater wisdom, greater compassion, greater depth of feeling through grief, uh, but it's gonna take time. It just takes time. The thing is, don't leave your wife alone in her grief. Grieve with her, be with her in this moment of pain, uh, you know, and, uh, and get through it and make sure you take care of your kids while you're doing this. Don't disappear into your grief. You don't have that luxury because you have other kids. All right, I uh, have to stop there. Uh, if you are not a member, become a member now. Go to, right now, right this minute, go to dailywire.com slash subscribe. Use code Claven at checkout for two months free on all annual plans. How do you spell Claven? You won't know if you're dropped into the Clavenless week because there are no Clavens in the Clavenless week and there are no E's in Claven. It's K-L-A-V-A-N. Stay around if you're a member. Member block coming up.